A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation around themes in the worlds of business, finance, and economics. I'm Stan Peniel, the banking editor. This year is shaping up to be one of the slowest years for stock market listings of tech companies since the financial crisis. That may seem odd at first, given that every week seems to bring news of a new unicorn, Silicon Valley slang for a private company valued at more than $1 billion. Some, like Uber or Airbnb, are now valued in the tens of billions with no IPO or initial public offering in sight. Why are these seemingly successful companies taking longer to list? Is something wrong with the public markets? And can a billion-dollar valuation in private markets be compared to its equivalent on the stock market? Alexander Suich, our U.S. technology editor, usually in San Francisco, is with us in London today, as is Ed McBride, our finance editor. Alexander, let's start with you. Square, uh, which is a payments processing company, is breaking ranks with a unicorn. It's announced that it's listing. It's the sort of company that every time it's raised money privately, its valuation has gone up another billion or two. But now that it's listing, that's not happening. It looks like it may be a down round. And people are watching it really closely because in the past when private unicorns have been raising, they've always gone up, as you say. Now people are actually getting a look into Square's book. So they're looking at how much money it loses, um, what its burn rate is, so how much cash it's burning through. There's some skepticism about whether it's really ready for the public market. And so they're doing their roadshow right now. And it looks likely that it won't be as highly valued. So that's what you mean when you say down round, right? It's it's raising money at a valuation which is less than the previous round. And that implies like a, a loss of momentum. Which is kind of the equivalent of having a scarlet letter in the valley. Currently, in the private market, they're able to continue to rise. When you're being tested by the public market and you see your value go lower, it's seen as a sort of failure by private venture capitalists and other peers. I mean, Edward, that immediately raises the question, how credible are these private valuations compared to the public valuations in that case? That's a very good question, Stan. I, I think the problem is that the, the private uh, funding grounds aren't comparable at all in the sense that they often come with special clauses that protect the investors. So in theory, you may be investing at $15 a share, but you're told that in future rounds, you're, you're guaranteed extra shares if the valuation of the company decreases, for example. That makes an investment very safe. And so it calls into question the sort of headline valuation. It's not quite the same as making a punt on the stock market by buying shares at a particular price. And, And that seems to be what's happened in the case of Square, that there are preference shares being issued to previous investors along with the initial uh, listing. Uh, so so those investors in some sense have uh, seem to be protected uh, against the down round. 
And of course, to Ed's point, um, the private market isn't a market at all because pessimists or short sellers aren't able to express their views. One banker told me that the private market valuations are really just a market set by optimists who believe in these companies. So when there are cracks that appear in companies, like has recently happened at Theranos, the diagnostics company, which purportedly does not use the tests that are thought to be so good as to justify an $8 billion valuation, Theranos is still able to stay at that $8 billion valuation. There's no market adjustment based on public perception. Yeah, the valuations are only updated when when money is raised as opposed to in a public market where everyday investors take a crack at the company. And it's really interesting. Like Mutual funds are increasingly investing in unicorns right now, which raises several questions. It's really odd because they all are marking them differently. Um, so some mutual funds funds are marking the exact same investments at par. Some recently have marked down Dropbox, for example, based on recent financial results. But um, the fact that mutual funds who own the same companies are marking them differently shows how complex these valuations seem to be. I mean, this is all another way of saying that that stock markets are supposed to be an efficient way for price discovery, right, to work out what a company should really be valued at based on the, the opinions of thousands of investors all sort of acting independently. You, you just don't have that by definition uh, with private companies. Um, it's based on the opinions of a limited pool. They may suffer from groupthink. They may be protected uh, by these special clauses that I mentioned. So to say that a company is valued at $10 billion when it's still private is more or less to admit that, that you don't know what its proper value should be. But it's a key part of the narrative, right, Alexander? Like a, a company that it's looking to recruit wants to say that it's a unicorn or it wants to show that its value is steadily going up and every round brings an extra boost in valuation. And so, you know, that kind of, you know, feeds into the narrative of the whole company. You're exactly right. But interestingly, we've started to see a change for the later rounds. Recently, the stock market has been so volatile that some investors have started to worry that it's going to be hard to get an exit. And so companies that are doing these later stage rounds to try and become either a unicorn for the first time or a larger unicorn are facing some resistance. And there have been reports of a few different companies that have set a price target or a valuation of about $3 billion who have had to then revise based on investor demand. I think that's rational. It shows that investors are actually looking at how their fortunes and future investments will play out. So I think that's probably a good thing that we're seeing a bit of skepticism when it comes to unicorn fundraising. But why are companies delaying in the first place? I mean, it used to be the IPO was, you know, the landmark event. It's where a founder could cash out and get some real money uh, out of out of their company. I, I think there's been this view that's become more commonplace in Silicon Valley in recent years that the public markets are a nuisance, that Although, yes, the IPO gives you this opportunity to cash out, it's, it's not as if these guys are short of money, right? If, if their companies are valued in the billions, you know, then they'll, they'll be able to buy the car or the apartment they want, right? And in the meantime, they don't have to deal with pesky investors, with valuations gyrating, with the, along with the ups and downs of the stock market, with all the sort of filings and reporting requirements that come with the stock market listing. Now, obviously, lots of public companies deal with that paperwork just fine. It's not necessarily a huge obstacle. 
But again, I think it's part of the sort of Silicon Valley mentality that they're supposed to be these companies that have great future prospects that aren't really – they don't think of themselves as kind of grounded in the quarterly data, right? They're, they think of themselves as changing the world and, and growing for, for decades. So this idea that they might get sort of bogged down in the quarterly numbers I think is, is putting a lot of them off. And part of the reason that companies don't want to go public right now is that they're almost entirely profitless. They're burning through so much money. The one exception and the the leading light that tech companies look to is Amazon, which is able to be public and be profitless in different quarters. Um, but I think investors are particularly accepting of that company because it has such a unique role in the market, has a real customer base, and has the ability to make money if it wants to. The concern with some of these startups is that they still don't have established businesses. So there are not immediate profits, even if they decided they wanted to become profitable and forsake growth. I think, though, that, you know, that's that's sort of a strategic choice by a lot of these firms, isn't it? I mean, it's not as if Uber and Airbnb don't have established businesses and don't have big cash flows, right? I think the, the argument a lot of unicorns make is they want to grow really fast. And so they need huge sums for investment, the sort of sums that you can't go endlessly back to the market to raise. So you, you have to raise privately. But of course, what other companies have done at a comparable stage in their development uh, in the past has been to grow organically you know, using their revenue it's just become part of the Silicon Valley mantra that you you can't sort of hang around and, and grow slowly, right? You have to grow fast. But that, that that's not necessarily true, is it? No. Everyone's read Peter Thiel's book Zero to One, which talks about the benefit of becoming a natural monopoly. So everyone is rushing to expand around the world to gain that natural monopoly status. Um, and therefore, they're justifying burning through, in some cases, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a month into expenditure with the idea that at some point this will become worthwhile because they'll have the market share. Where it becomes a real issue is for certain companies that have um, transactions that don't have positive margins for them. So they're actually like paying to attract a customer to their on-demand service, whether it's a food delivery service or an on-demand cleaning service. Because even if you have scale, those are never going to become profitable transactions for you. And so that's the real concern that some of these companies are scaling so quickly without the underlying economics ever being in a position to benefit them. Yeah, and I guess the idea is you get scale and then that gives you some kind of pricing power and you have this kind of natural monopoly, but but that seems incredibly optimistic and you really need vast piles of cash to make it work in some cases. Right. I mean, you're basically asking, is there is there another tech bubble, right? I mean, are we looking past the inability of many of these firms to generate revenues that we think are sustainable in our excitement about scale and natural monopolies and, and so on? I mean, it still seems quite a bit healthier than the previous tech bubble, where a lot of companies were richly valued with no top line, let alone any bottom line. And the key difference, I think, if we're looking at something like an on-demand company, is that they don't have the same infrastructure costs. So in the previous bubble, the the delivery companies, 
someone like Webvan, who's delivering groceries, would have built a warehouse, had full-time staff. In some ways, they've learned their lessons this time around. The newest incarnations of those companies are using freelancers, although there's potentially issues with that going through the California courts of how those laborers should be categorized. But they haven't built out warehouses. They're doing it in a much leaner way. But the problem is they're giving vouchers to get customers. So it's an amazing time to be a consumer right now, especially in major cities like San Francisco and New York, because there are all these tech companies trying to gain market share very quickly, competing with each other by basically trying to hand you nearly free services. So it seems frothy at at the very least. Do we have any sense of what could make the tech valuations crumble? Well, a lot of the money has been pouring into technology because there are rates of return to be achieved elsewhere. Some wonder whether when interest rates go up, there will be less demand for tech investments. I think that's possible. I think it's less likely that there's going to be an immediate shock to tech valuations because of interest rates. I think what's more likely is if we see a lot of stock market volatility um, and slower macro growth, that some of the growth rates that we've been seeing in tech are going to decline. And right now, the valuations have been premised on growth for these tech companies. If it looks less likely that they're going to be able to have a profitable and successful IPO and there's less growth going forward for their core business, we're going to see potentially down rounds or less heady growth rates for their valuations. But I'm not a believer that we're going to see some kind of dramatic correction in the private tech market. I think it's much more likely we'd see it in the public one. Alexander Suich, thanks very much. Thanks also to Edward McBride. That's all we have time for this week. You can read two pieces by Alexandra in this week's print edition, uh, one on startups and one on Hewlett Packard, which together nicely capture the shift in power in Silicon Valley. As always, you can find other stories on finance, economics, and business at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist 